that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. All right, welcome back to the Miserable Offenders podcast. Uh, this is Ken and Andrew Brazier, and I'm joined by Ken and Isaac. Ken and Isaac, you want to say hello? Hi, uh, this is Canon Isaac Rayburg, rector at All Saints Anglican in San Antonio, Texas, and the canon for liturgy in the Diocese of the West. Glad to be back as always. How are you doing, Andrew? Doing pretty good, brother. Doing pretty good. How about yourself? Oh, can't complain. Can't complain. We're we're surviving. Just got off of a vestry meeting. That's always a good thing. It's a short vestry meeting. That's always know. a good thing. That's good. <laughs> that, that is good. So yeah, you can't go wrong there. We're actually going to have our first vestry meeting uh, in... A couple of months, we're going to elect our first vestry. We just went from a uh, mission status to a parish. So uh, we've got our bishop's council, which will transfer into becoming the first vestry. So uh, oh, that's exciting. Things. It is. It is. So always fun and exciting to see a little bit of growth, especially during these uh, crazy times. Who, who knew that 2020 was going to be the way it is? And who knew that we'd uh, gain members uh, during a pandemic? But there we go. Oh, that's uh, beautiful. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> Well, we are going through the uh, through Peter Toon's Knowing God in the Liturgy. And as we've mentioned before, you can download this from the New Scriptorium, um, uh, the New Scriptorium website, which is part of the Prayer Book Society USA. That's right, right? That's right, yes. Well, actually, it's online. Uh, I think it's published by the uh, Prayer Book Society USA. And I know you can still buy it on Amazon. I actually had it pulled up a second ago. But I switched over to the new Scriptorium website, and uh, it's on there for free. So if you like the good old-fashioned way, you can definitely purchase a copy. And uh, if you'd like to read it online, it's right there on newscriptorium.com. Excellent, excellent. Well, where we left off, we had just begun to talk about what knowing is. And last, last time we talked about knowing persons. And we're going to pick up with the next section here, which is titled, Who is God? Um, I'll go ahead and get started with those first two paragraphs. I think we did read them last time, but uh, let's, let's back up just to get some context. Sounds great. All right. Who is God? When we speak of knowing God, we have in mind, I think, both knowing about him and knowing him in personal friendship. We need to know something about God, creator and redeemer, in order to accept his gracious call to enter a personal relationship of faith in him and love of him. However, if we take the ministration of holy baptism seriously, then we must rejoice in the fact that God places infants in a right relationship with himself from the time of their baptism. Then within this growing personal friendship with the Lord in the fellowship of the church, the child learns about this God in whom he trusts. Let us first reflect upon what it is to know about God. As Anglicans and Episcopalians, our knowledge of God is the same as that of the whole church, Eastern and Western, Catholic and Protestant, 
for we all trace our history back to the same source, the Apostolic Church. This knowledge is given the technical name of classical Christian theism by theologians in order to distinguish it from other ways of stating acclaimed knowledge of God. For example, we do not accept the ever popular doctrine of pantheism, the doctrine that God is equivalent to nature and that the natural order is either God or the, exter or the external expression of God. There have always been pantheists in Western culture, poets like Walt Whitman, for example, Anglicans who take their Bible and prayer books seriously do not believe that God is the equivalent of nature. They confess that he is the Lord of nature. Did you see that um, there's a little kerfuffle recently in the Church of England? One of their um, relatively new bishops, um, she was um, given, I guess, like a little weekly teaching or whatever, and it was rank pantheism. And um, I think the guys from Anglican Unscripted called her out <laughs> and I then the, uh, yeah. yeah and then the uh, the, the um i guess the uh senior or bishops responded oh that's not what she meant you know she's orthodox <laughs> and all this stuff but you can no. tell she's not orthodox and yeah. it's probably not even a um a um intentional thing it's just kind of this default like they said uh like toon said here there there is there's always been pantheists in Western culture. It's a, it's an easy default position to slip into, especially yeah. if you're kind of you know from that, you know you, you grew up in in the baby boomer generation with some of the uh, the you know the peace and love and you know yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sort of stuff. It was it was it was kind of funny, and it it wasn't funny so much because I mean it wasn't. It should have been a lot more controversial than it was, but it was yeah. kind of funny just because it shows the. Uh, kind of the silliness that it's easy to slip into rather than actual intentional heresy. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and I have to say that I think that today we see a lot of it in the spiritual, but not religious, uh, movement. Uh, not really that it's movement. It's just more of a trend of, uh, yeah. of so many, you know, uh, younger people, uh, in our generation and younger who, if they do have any sort of, of religion or religious, Affiliation, they default to saying, "Well, I'm spiritual, but not religious," which typically means I'm not attending any sort of organized religion. I've rejected uh, forms of creeds and confessions, and kind of I've built it my own way. And uh, I mean, you can have a, a whole string of them from a very Christian-believing uh, person who doesn't attend organized churches anymore, but they still claim to follow Christ, to those who basically go more towards a uh, pantheistic uh, bent of where you know I find. You know, God, where, wherever I'm at, typically I'm out in nature. And uh, I've even heard it referred from uh, uh, another person who said that I find God whenever I'm on the golf course on Sundays. And I had to pick up my jaw <laughs> off the floor on, on that one. I was like, this is interesting that, that God finds you when you are enjoying yourself <laughs> you know, on the weekend, doing what you love the most. But, uh, and I, I think it does speak to, um, you know, the failure of kind of, um, modernist rationality mm -hmm. you know I, I think if we would have talked to some of the folks back at the beginning of the 20th century they would have thought that um you know we would all kind of rationally outgrow spirituality period yeah. but that's just totally not the way it has been i mean you, you very rarely you don't find too many pure materialists pure rationalists these days i mean they're there but mm -hmm. Um, that's just not a default position. You almost have to kind of argue yourself into that position. Yeah, and in my experience, at least, you know, it's anecdotal, but uh, is that those who claim a rationalistic or materialistic um, viewpoint 
still will find in a conversation or at some point we'll have a conversation in which they mention, well, you know, I really feel closest to God um, whenever I'm out in nature or I'm taking a hike. And uh, I don't knock it to say that they're not seeing the glory of God and perhaps having some sort of encounter because certainly I go out into a hike and I do feel, you know, this is this is beautiful, this is sacred, you know, that maybe it's a thin place as the, uh, the Irish and Scottish would say on earth. But it's fascinating because St. Paul, as we know from uh, reading Romans, is very clear on, well, of course you, you see God. <laughs> God's right. revealing himself in nature. And, and look back to the natural law that he's revealed upon you uh, in your heart and your mind. But uh, it's interesting because the same person will claim, oh, no, I'm a strict atheist. You know, like none of this is, is true. It's hogwash. But in certain moments of, uh, you know, of, of just being candid, they'll mention, you know, I really felt this closeness, you know, in this moment when I was doing this hike or, or seeing this great, you know, waterfall or X, Y, Z. So it really goes to show that, you know, man is a spiritual creature. And if we don't worship, you know, the Lord God Almighty, we'll just create something else and right. stick it with the label of God. Yeah, what was it? Uh, was it Calvin that said the heart is an idol factory? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, yeah, such a great quote. Yeah. Well, let's pick up here. I'll pick up the uh, the next paragraph. Further, we do not accept deism, a doctrine of God popular in the 18th century, both in America and Europe, and intimately associated with the Enlightenment. Deism is the teaching that God created the world and then left it all alone to get on with its existence. That is, like a great clockmaker. He made a clock and then wound it up to let it get on the job of keeping time. Rejecting this approach, Anglicans believe that God the Creator is also God the Sustainer and Redeemer. God cares for the world that he made, ex nihilo, out of nothing. And by his mighty word, he keeps it in existence in order moment by moment. This belief is expressed often through the use of the Psalter in the daily office. For example, Psalm 29 as well as in the canticle, Venite, at morning prayer. So what is theism? It is the belief in one God who has created the world. He is infinite, self-existent, incorporeal, eternal, immutable, impassable, simple, omniscient, and omnipotent. All these words here are used in their technical or philosophical meaning. A shorter answer is to say that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. A simpler way to answer the question is to say that theism is belief in one God who totally transcends, is above and wholly distinct from the world that he made, and who is perfect in wisdom, power, and love. And so with that, Canon Isaac, you know, I would like to get your thoughts on his definitions there, I don't really have any qualms. I thought it's a very nice, succinct way of bringing about uh, these philosophical notions. Yeah, it is It is reminiscent of some of the language in the articles. Um, I, 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 in particular, really enjoy um, the uh, that part of the definition about God's simplicity um, because, you know, we... It's it's a you know as he pointed out that's in a technical philosophical sense, you know yeah. meaning that that he he can't be broken down into any smaller parts. Um, you know he is absolutely complete as he is. Um, there is no breaking him down. There is no um, building on top. He just is, and that, that's a 
that's a really comforting doctrine. Um, and it seems that a lot of that kind of classical theism that, that he's defining here fell way out of fashion for a while. But I'm seeing a resurgence in interest in it, um, both in some of our our circles as well as uh, some of the Reformed and Lutheran folks that I listen to on podcasts and whatnot. And so that's that's really cool. I'm, I'm enjoying seeing this revival of not just discussing it, but actually doing studies on it. It seems pretty cool to me. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I have to echo that in terms of of his description there of the divine uh, simplicity that uh, far too often, you know, if you're not as familiar with the terminology and the philosophical uh, definition of it, you can hear that and think, wait, God is simple and just think of it in the common sense. So uh, that's what I like about Dr. Toon's writing. It's very accessible and bringing up uh, great deep topics uh, in such a manner that um, it's not unapproachable at all. Um, he doesn't write in the style of Lewis, but very much similar to C.S. Lewis in, in talking about the deep things, but in a manner that uh, is casual and easy to read. Yeah. I, I like that he, he pointed out how um, um, this idea of God being intimately involved, yes. not just like the deist, um, how, how we really express that in our tradition through the use of the Psalter and the Venite, um, which is a psalm anyway. But... Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I I had been for whatever reason kind of kind of falling back on that 1945 Daily Office Lectionary, which I'm not yeah. a big fan of. But you know, it's it's what's there in in my edition of the prayer book. And um, you know, the 45, you know, the default position is is one psalm or sometimes even like a portion of a psalm a day, rather than the whole psalter. And just in the last few days, I started going back to what I had always done before and always got a lot of value out of, you know, reciting the Psalms of the day for that 30 day cycle. Oh, it's so much better. There's just so much ground that you cover um, when it's not kind of curated, but when you're just kind of getting it water hose style. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I mean, that's really what it is, because I know that um, with the 2019 uh, ACNA prayer book, of course, they gave the option of like a 60-day psalter, trying to make it more um, easily digestible uh, for someone doing the daily offices. And I took a look at it, and I like that they're trying to help uh, the American, really the North American context, to get back into that pattern of going through the psalms. It's a lot more psalms than doing the, the 1945 uh, edition of the lectionary. But I'm like you. I, I'd rather just do it the good old-fashioned 30-day uh, Psalter, um, you're doing a lot more. And like you said, you really are drinking from the fire hose uh, when you do it. But, man, you do it every 30 days, and you start to realize how much of the Psalter you're uh, instilling in your heart and your soul. Yeah. And how yeah, it gets more up in more. you. It does. I like that. It gets up in you. That's exactly what it is. You know, it sticks with you. And, uh, you know, like my grandmother says, you know, it sticks to your ribs. Um, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's good Southern stuff right there. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'll pick up with the next one. Uh, Historically, the two chief rivals to theism have been polytheism, the belief in many gods, as in ancient Rome and Greece and in popular Hinduism today, and pantheism, the view that the world itself is divine because it is the self-expression of God's very being. 
Today, there is also a sophisticated form of pantheism called panentheism, which teaches that the self-development of God is inextricably connected with the evolution of the universe. This is usually expressed through the process, uh, through the process philosophy of the late A.N. Whitehead, which sees God as constantly changing and growing in perfection through including within his being the experiences of the world, which may, which may be called God's body, as in some feminist theology. Is, is, uh, is Whitehead the one that popularized so-called open theism? Is that, is that the guy? You know, I didn't even think about that. I think you're absolutely right. Um, that's going to bug me. I can't say 100% for sure, but... Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a long time since I looked into yeah, that. Yeah, because I'm trying to think of like what AN stands for. That's Alfred uh, something Whitehead. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, my my uh, my my brother, who's he's he's um he's an Orthodox Jew. He's he's not he's not a Christian, but um, yeah, yeah. He he studied a lot of Hinduism, and he would probably take issue with um, the idea of Hinduism as being polytheistic. But um, he would say that the way that that it, it's a, it's a lot more complex philosophically, where each of the the gods is kind of an expression of a of a single single greater god. Which which ends up being another kind of pantheism or panentheism, yeah. anyway. I mean, it ends up in the same place, but um, yeah, it's 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 very interesting some of the ways that um, folks. Well, he did say popular Hinduism, so that 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 probably is more accurate at a popular level. Yeah, but, yeah, um, and that's probably a fair characterization there, because you know, especially in the West, the, the what is yeah. called you know Hinduism and Buddhism, you know, a lot of times is. <laughs> to be quite frank, is people just kind of going off and, and discovering, uh, you know, some sort of Eastern religion and adapting it to a Western context. And so. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I've heard. You know, I remember one of my high school teachers saying, you know, he he was a he was a Christian, but he said, well, you know, in its in its kind of pure form, Buddhism is more of a philosophy. And it's not impossible to be both a Christian and a Buddhist, but it's a lot of it's a lot more work than you'd want to do. Interesting. Um, <laughs> and again, I, I mean, I'm not these these aren't these aren't the Eastern religions. I don't really get very much, but yeah. Um, but I mean, I, either in in all of them, there's a lot of there's still a lot of works righteousness um, because that's just the default position. You know, we're yeah, all, absolutely. We're all yeah. trying to earn our salvation by default. And uh, it reminds me of actually, um, we used to have a pastor here in Birmingham uh, who became famous through a lot of the books that he sold, uh, David Platt. And uh, he moved oh, yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. He went on to become like the head of the uh, Baptist, uh, Southern Baptist North American Mission Board. And I think he's now relocated up in the, the greater D.C. area. But long story short, he had a, a um, it might have been a sermon, it might have been a talk, but he made the point of uh, when he was out in India doing some missionary work that he was talking with some people and they were asking you know like what makes Christianity different from um, what we believe and I can't remember where he was in India as, as to whether or not he was talking to um, to someone who was uh, Hindu or not but he made the point that with other religions he said it's like a pinnacle trying to figure out how to get to the top of the pyramid to reach God and he turned around and said but what if I told you that God came down to meet us and i was like that's that's a good way of, of trying to do a very simple illustration of how christianity is different and not like every other religion 
in terms of our description of, of salvation, where salvation begins, how it occurs, and how it ends. And, and one of the things that the prayer book does so well is that as much as it does hold us responsible as Christians, we're supposed we have our we have our bounden duty, as it says in the in the catechism. Yes. Um, you know, as much as it has has our duties, you know, when it comes to to the relationship with God, it's you know it makes very clear that you know this is this is something that He's initiating. This is something that He's doing. Um, you know, and then we're just kind of pleading for His grace and His mercy because on our own we just can't can't cut it. And that takes so much of the um, the rat race out of it, you know. In 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 there, there's a lot of kind of um, almost pop Arminianism in Arminianism in today's um, evangelicalism that is still yeah. a okay. I've got to go out and find God, you know. And and it's so nice. That that's not the way it is, <laughs> you, know, you know, and and even though we we've had you know we certainly have there's a lot of historically there's been a lot of Arminians in, in the Anglican world yeah um, it's it's not it's it's a soft Arminianism that that doesn't yeah. create a rat race <laughs> absolutely there's actually a book that uh, I have many books sitting around that I need to, to read that I've ordered from Amazon and uh, one of them is talking about English Arminianism in the uh, the reformational period and post-reformation period and it makes a point of how there's a difference in the english arminianism from the greater continental arminianism um so all that to be said the point that i make is like even like the, what we kind of see today is more the wesleyan uh influence right. of arminianism and, and somebody, kind of finney finney's revivalism yes. with their yes. yeah yeah absolutely and, and you see this kind of nuance of they'll stress that salvation is not from yourself but there's still that, you know, it's not really Americanism, but we embrace it as Americans. I'm like, yes, you know, like, I do need to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I do need to go and find God, and I need to go and accept him. And, and all those, you know, things that you need to do. And I need to make him my Lord. Yes, you know? yeah, yeah, have you made him? Yeah, that's what? exactly right, yeah. And, uh, I mean, I grew up with that language, and uh, yeah, I grew up too. as a United Methodist um, uh, church member. I think I've said that before, like, on the podcast, but... But that was my background of where I uh, was born and raised and then went to the Southern Baptist because, uh, quite frankly, they had a clear presentation of, of the gospel and the need for Jesus Christ. But it was all about your choice, you know, make your choice. Then for the Southern Baptist, have you been baptized fully immersed, you know, or you're baptized as a child, we don't count that. You know, so making it very much like you need to do these steps. And if you haven't, then you haven't been properly baptized. You haven't properly received uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and looking back on it as I got older um, and more deep in my history, the more I kind of realized, you know, this really makes it on me in terms of my salvation, and yet when I read the scriptures, it's not on me, and thank God my baptism was not my own choice, but was something that God was acting uh, upon me, and God acting in me, and uh definitely made it a lot easier uh, for me to to come to an understanding of infant baptism uh, not only being uh, valid but being normative uh, for the historical church yeah yeah good stuff good stuff well, I'll pick back up here on uh, the next couple of paragraphs are short here 
Theism, to which we referred above, is a rational form of theism, and still is accepted and or taught by those who do not think that God actually involves himself in or acts within the world. It's probably fair to say that some old-style biblical scholars who reject the intervention of God through miracles are deists. Do you remember the collection of essays entitled The Myth of God Incarnate, published in 1977? Much of the thought in that book, excuse me, in that book arose from or was an expression of deism. See further, David Brown's The Divine Trinity, published 1985, from pages 3 to 50. Modern living forms of, excuse me, modern living forms of theism include Judaism and Islam. There is, of course, a profound continuity between Jewish and Christian theism, for the first disciples were Jewish theists who were wholly committed to the Lord, their God. Yet, through their encounter with Jesus, they eventually went forth gladly and committedly to baptize converts to Christianity, quote, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They moved from the confession of one God to the confession of one God and Trinity. That's, that's a really important point. You know, I spent um, much of my teens and 20s in Messianic Judaism. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, it's... it's it, it's it's something that's kind of all over the map. I've I've recently yeah. been in some discussions of kind of reminiscing about those days with some other other Anglicans who had been in that world or um, been tangential to that world one way or the other. And um, but but one of the things that that often happens, you know, kind of the um, one of the one of the common pathologies um, in some messianic circles is that because the concept of the Trinity is offensive to Jewish people out of a kind of sincere desire to evangelize um, they say well maybe we can you know kind of convince these people that Jesus is the Messiah even if they're not going to believe that he's God and that's okay but it's not quite okay you yeah. know and 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 what ends up happening is over the long term doing that um, the Trinity gets gets relegated to something that's optional that becomes adiaphora and yeah. you know okay now now you're you've you've, you've become heretics um you know fortunately that was never something that that happened at the congregation i was part of at least not on the not on the um leadership level some of the people i think kind of did yeah but um but yeah that that is one of the things and and the truth is as, as much as i love my brother and as much as who you know again he's an orthodox jew and as much as you know I, I, I love my Jewish neighbors and friends um, in its in its modern expression that rejection of the tri Trinity um, it is it, it, it has to be considered you know a false a false religion <laughs> you know yeah and it's hard for people to hear that today especially in yeah. the culture we live in uh, being uh, pluralistic and the tendency to say, you know, why can't we simply coexist? You all believe in God, so you all believe in the same thing. It's like, not quite, because it goes back to the question, the very question that Dr. Toon is asking here of like, of knowing and knowing God. You know, when you say God, especially in, in the English language, you know, like, what do you mean? Who, who are you talking about? And for Christians, we have to say is uh, the one triune holy God who revealed himself. And it brings to light why uh, we rely upon creeds and uh, in a turn yep. we go back and, and point to where the creeds 
uh, are rooted in the scriptures, and that's exactly why we hold to these creeds and we have held to these creeds. Um, actually, I'm looking ahead here, <clears throat> excuse me, and we're about to, to mention the Athanasian Creed in a couple of paragraphs. Um, I don't know what Dr. Chin's going to say on it, but it precisely the reason why we hold on to this ancient faith is not because everything that is old is true and correct, but because we see that based upon the foundation of Scripture, um, that it's illustrating this belief in the one holy triune God that we worship. Yep. Yeah, I, th I think my, my homily last week yeah. used a lot of the uh, the Christological statements of the Nicene Creed kind of as the, the format, um, you know, the passage in the, that, that was the 18th Sunday after Trinity. And so the gospel passage is where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about whose son is the Christ. Yes. And um, so, yeah, kind of digging into Psalm 110, some of those passages from Hebrews. But it was really the creed, the Nicene Creed gives gave the really the, the skeleton to build all that off of. And um, it's it was it was a very fun exercise for me doing doing that because it is such a good summary of what we believe. And when in doubt, and you're preaching a sermon, you can't go wrong or be accused of being uh, heretical when you're just simply preaching from the creeds. So. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, I'll pick up the next one. Um, riffing off the Trinity here. Therefore, what distinguishes classical Christian theism from any other form of theism is that Christians believe, teach, and confess that God eternally exists not only as the one and only God, but as one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Further, Christians also hold that the eternal Son became incarnate as Jesus, the Christ, and that he alone is the means of their salvation. Thus, it may be rightly claimed that the extra beliefs concerning God, which Christians hold and Jews do not share, are based wholly on divine revelation, as that is received in and through Jesus himself. The confession that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate lead on in the life of the church to the confession that the eternal God is one God in three persons. Under the general guidance of the Holy Spirit, Christian experience of God in worship and in daily life, together with reflection upon the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, led to the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine arose to explain the vital, spiritual, and moral experience of God within the fellowship of Christians, for the church knew and worshipped the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And there you go. <laughs> that, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no real extra commentary could be added on that except a, uh, an amen, you know. Um, and, and I think that what is great about it is that when it comes to uh, belief in the Trinity, uh, it, it's easy for, for non-Christians or, or, frankly, former Christians who have not really been taught uh, the Trinity and the, under the Christian understanding of what we believe to think that. So, in other words, you, you know, at some point the Christians decided to promote Jesus and make him into right. God. And uh, I distinctly remember, I might have mentioned this in one of our older podcasts, that uh, I remember having a history of Christianity class at a public university taught by a self-avowed uh, uh Jewish professor who was uh, an atheist. Uh, that's how he introduced himself. He came in, and, uh, and I forget his name, but he was like, I'm Professor So-and-So. 
uh, I'm a non-practicing Jew and an ardent atheist. And I was like, well, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> You're teaching history of Christianity. And he had us read some uh, very outdated, I didn't know it at the time, outdated scholarship. Uh, the old claim that once the uh, first council of Nicaea uh, came about, that, you know, that's when Jesus became God. And uh, that's actually, I think, the name of the book that he assigned to us, When Jesus Became God. And uh, oh, I forget yeah. the name of the, of the scholar who wrote that book, but it uh, it helped me uh, because I started doing my research and digging deeper into church history, uh, which made this, you know, once United Methodists turned Southern Baptists, uh, start to dig deep enough to go towards liturgical worship. Uh, so it worked out in the end. But that being said, that's a very common misconception, and it really fascinates me and kind of scares me. Uh, I'm a history nerd, but we are so historically deprived or willfully historically ignorant um, in our nation that, you know, you make a claim like that. Oh, oh, well, that's when Jesus became God. And people would just take that at face value (laughs) instead of looking back to, no, let's look at the apostolic fathers. Let's look at the... the pre-Nicene fathers and see how they're referencing Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And, and you know, and back to last week's gospel, um, mm-hmm. you know, if if uh, he's the son of David, why then does does David call him Lord? Exactly. Um, you know, I mean, it's, you know, I, I think that was that was one of the one of the setups that I said in, in, in my homily. I was like, okay, you know, you'll hear um, secular historians or liberal theologians say that um, nobody thought of him as God until Nicaea, but you know this passage blatantly says otherwise. <laughs> yes, absolutely. He, that Jesus never claimed that for himself. Well, look, here he is. He's claiming it right here. <laughs> yeah. That argument has always sun. been funny to me, especially when you look at the the I am statements of the Gospel yep. of John, and then of course they just attack the Gospel of John. Ah, oh, it wasn't written by John. It was written you know, nearly a hundred years afterwards and yada, yada, yada. But then you go back to, all right, let's go to the synoptic, you know. All right, let's go to the Psalter. <laughs> when Christ himself references the Psalter to make the point, who is David talking about? And uh, it, it's beautiful. I actually uh, was mentioning uh, to Hala, my daughter, about the uh, uh, the pre-incarnate uh, uh, appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. It's just, you know, walking through several of them and saying, you know, who does this sound like? Does it sound like an angel? Or does it sound like someone more? You know, someone different? She's like, God, this is interesting. And she's like, six. she's like, it says angel. You just read angel. But then it, it talks about the Lord. And it talks about God. It sounds like God speaking. And I was like, yeah. I was like, what do you think about that? Could that be Jesus? And I was like, could that be Jesus? <laughs> like, well done. <laughs> you got a sharp one there. That's beautiful. Yeah. She's, she's smarter than me, that's for sure, because it took a lot more reading and being many decades older to be like, oh, wow, huh, looks like that could be Jesus in the Old Testament. <laughs> that's, that's, that's amazing. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. I'll pick up here on, uh, I'll do the last, I guess they're not really two paragraphs, but the end of the section here. Of course, the confession of the Holy Trinity has to be stated with great care for it can also so easily be misunderstood. For example, it can be carelessly stated and taken to mean that God is one God with three major names, Father, Son, and Spirit. This was called modalism, or I'm going to butcher this, Sahelianism in the early church. That that H should be a B. (laughs) 
Is that what? It, okay, yeah. I was yeah, Sibel, yeah, Sibel, yeah, that, that happens yeah. a lot in this copy, unfortunately. That, that so yeah, for anyone else who's reading it online, the H's sometimes should be B. And I'm glad I was looking at that, and I was like, Sahelianism. I mean, it's Greek, but. <laughs> so, thank you, Canon Isaac, for the correction there. So, so this was commonly called when you think of one guy with three major names: modalism or Sibelianism in the early church. Regrettably. This error seems to have entered into the Book of Common Prayer in 1979 at several significant places. For example, the opening blessing of the Eucharist in Rites 1 and 2. Or the Trinity can be taken to me there are three equal gods called the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is tritheism. Then there is one concept, or excuse me, there is the concept of the Trinity as a descending hierarchy of three related but not equal expressions of deity. First is the Father. At a lower level of deity is the Son. And at an even lower level is the Holy Spirit. Thus, only the Father is really God. The Son and the Spirit are superior angels. The fact that these these excuse me, the fact that these pitfalls are there ought to cause us to be thankful that the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is stated with great care and accuracy in the common prayer tradition, especially where that contains the, I'm going to butcher the, the Latin. It's the Latin for the Athanasian Creed. The <laughs> quincunque vault. I, like I've always said, even though I'm trained as a lawyer, they didn't teach us actually how to, to say Latin. So um, somewhere, Dr. Brad Littlejohn is, is wincing and probably crying out uh, right now. But uh, <laughs> the Athanasian Creed. We're all going to end up into the Davenant Institute retaking remedial <laughs> Latin. <laughs> <laughs> This is great. Is it remedial though? If I've never taken it in the first place, you know, like, right, right, maybe, same here. It's, it's, it's medial, you know, like. <laughs> I digress. But Doctor Tune continues here with a typical Anglican devotion for Trinity Sunday will be something like this: Come, let us adore the Sacred Trinity, three persons and one God. To Thee, the Eternal Father, made by none. To Thee, the Uncreated Son, begotten by the Father alone. To thee, the blessed spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son, to this one holy, consubstantial, and undivided trinity, be ascribed all power and wisdom and glory, now and forever. Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of the majesty of thy glory. Further, the constant appearance of heresies and errors ought to make us keen to learn sound and edifying knowledge about the God whom we worship. And thus the butchering ends. <laughs> <laughs> I have been told that uh, because Latin is a dead language, yes. there are there are a variety of legitimate pronunciations. So <laughs> I, I have heard that as well. Although I'll be the first one to admit that the Southern English twang make it up as you go along version is probably not acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still going to try it. Whenever I see it, I'm going to give it my uh, my best shot. So. Just repeat it enough, and it'll 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 take on a life of its own. Now, I heard the exact same thing that you said when in law school. They'd uh, we'd come across various phrases, and uh, and we'd hear people say it, you know, two different ways. And uh, goodness, what's the one that that we heard the most? It was like tomato, tomato. Um, oh, my mind is going blank. It's not habeas corpus. Everybody typically says it the same way, although I had a professor tell me that is not the correct way to say it in Latin, but everyone has American and Anglo Anglicized it to that uh, pronunciation. Uh, Vordire, jury selection. But there's Vordire, uh, I've heard like uh, 
I switched the other way. Dire for deer, and then there's a third uh, pronunciation. I've always heard for dire, and, and going with that, knowing that that's not the correct pronunciation because of um, the use of e in English and Latin is different. But uh, it just goes to show you that <laughs> here in the states, we just kind of go along with it, do what we please. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, and being being in, um, in 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 Texas, and then yeah. before that, New Mexico, um, you know, I, I would I usually default to kind of using more of a Spanish pronunciation, mm. and so um, you know, the Venite is always the Venite to me. But anytime I talk to like old school cradle Episcopalians, like yeah. like, like World War Two, you know, folk folks that you know, from that generation or folks from England. They always insist that it's the vi- um, the vanity. Interesting. Yes, yes. Every every time I'm like, wow, that's so weird. Huh. But uh, but you know, for all I know, I'm just importing in, importing the uh, Gonzalez side of my family <laughs> into well, things. Well, yeah, Spanish is a Latin language for crying out loud. Meanwhile, English is a you know <laughs> an amalgamation uh, over time. So I would uh, definitely go with more of the the Spanish influence. Um, but that's just my two cents. <laughs> so, have you ever seen that um, kind of hymn or devotion that he uh, he mentions at the end there? I, I've never I encountered that before. No, see, I, I haven't either. And so, uh, of course, you know, coming into Anglicanism, I was like, "Well, this is fascinating." A typical Anglican devotion is how he characterizes it for Trinity Sunday, and I definitely want to learn more about it um, because I, I've not heard it before. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Um, but I also thought it was interesting. I'd always heard that Dr. Toon criticized the opening acclamation mm-hmm. of the, uh, the 1979 prayer book. And for those who don't know, it says, uh, Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you may think, well, what's, what's the big deal? Isn't that what we say? Well, no. I mean, if you're using the 1979, yes. But, <laughs> but if you're using the uh, 28, 1662, or even the 2019, it's Blessed be God, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, he's making the distinction of not using those articles, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, to really emphasize the personhood of, uh, of the triune God. When I can't tell you how many times I have heard modalistic teaching, even in otherwise orthodox Anglican circles. Yeah. And, and I don't think that it's really because these folks, you know, including clergy, Mm-hmm. Um, are modalists so much as they are just kind of sloppy in in their in their in their descriptions. You know, yep. not not being theologically savvy or not necessarily really caring about some of the technological way that it's used. Some of these terms are used theologically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not realizing that person has a very technical meaning in theology. Yes. Um, you know, things like that, and or or you know, just using. St. Patrick's bad analogies to uh, <laughs> to bring a little Lutheran satire YouTube it's, videos involved. <laughs> it's, it's, I gotta say, probably one of the greatest contributions to the church in the 21st century was that video from Luther's satire. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Hans Feeney. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. It's, it's you know a good joke, but at the same time, it makes a great point of all these various descriptions and. I swear, like, every single one on that YouTube video, I'm like, yes, I have heard this, you know, in a sermon at some point in my lifetime. And uh, it is just way too easy to 
accidentally <laughs> describe the Trinity in a, in a heretical manner. And um, I always tell those who are interested in the church, joining the church, or curious about Anglicanism, and they never, they're Christians who never encounter the creeds, and so it's all new to them of explaining to know the Trinity. Let's start out with the creedal statements and then work yeah. our way to Scripture to see where's the support for this statement and, uh, and go from there. Because um, trying to come up with an example, I mean, I, I, I've tried to avoid, try is the key word there, to avoid the, uh, the key mistake of talking about the Trinity on Trinity Sunday <laughs> and getting into trouble. And my default is, is typically uh, the past two Sundays, I just mentioned, we're about to profess the Athanasian Creed. If you're curious about the Trinity, Pay attention to your site and then go back and reread it and, uh, and digest it and think about it. There's a lot to dwell upon uh, in that creed. And uh, it's a very beautiful way of, of pointing to what the Trinity is and is not, um, which is not typical of the Apostles or the Nicene Creed of, of doing both uh, negative uh, uh, articulation of what the Trinity is not in addition to what the Trinity is. Yeah, there's a there's a setting for not an easy setting either for the yeah. Athanasian Creed and the St. Dunstan Psalter. And so I, I kind of try to stumble my way through that um, for a you know parish video on Trinity Sunday most most of the time. I'll we'll we'll have either either me or one of the other um, the seminarians or the clergy teach through the Athanasian Creed in Sunday school. Since it's not in the twenty eight, unfortunately, that's one of the sad things that the American church did was yeah. remove yeah. the the Athanasian Creed, um, you know, we don't typically recite it during the the worship, but we do usually teach through it. And I, I do, I, I do tend to go through it, go try try to teach the, you know, and it really ends up being more of a teaching than a preaching on Trinity Sunday yeah. um, for the homily, um, just because I know so many of our folks have just heard really bad things. This is true. And, um, you know, but but one thing I do is I say, okay, you know, there's not going to be any any illustrations in here because all the illustrations are St. Patrick's bad analogies. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I'm I'm really proud of some of our twenty somethings and, and that they uh, some of the twenty somethings at our parish, um, they uh, they instantly respond with that's modalism, Patrick, or <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, or or something like that when when when, when they hear it, it's it's, it's 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 very good. I I, <laughs> I like that about them. I love it. That's funny. Uh, I mean, it, it's great to to hear that you do you know studies like that, and I hope that other uh, churches do the same, um, or that other listeners um, you know ask their their parish uh, priests to uh, to walk through the Athanasian Creed uh, and the Trinity, uh, not to set them up for failure, <laughs> so you can yell, that's modalism, Patrick, but, <laughs> but to, uh, to really hear, you know, what the doctrine is, because uh, for too many uh, of us who, who grew up in other traditions, um, and for me personally, is I would read church history on the, uh, uh, the various heresies that were condemned, which typically were heresies uh, in, in the Greek East, that we're addressing who Jesus Christ is, mm -hmm. who is the Trinity. And I would read through these uh, heresies and realize it's any given point in my life. I fell under one of these heresies and oh yeah, uh, totally. a little bit of, of just like naturally you try to reason it out and think that, well, this makes sense. And you realize, Oh, I'm a modalist and didn't even know it. <laughs> yep. And, uh, and just kind of go through the, uh, 
uh, a whole plethora of different heresies of when you realize or someone tells you, no, no, that's modalism, you know, that's not the correct way of thinking, but you're not brought into line in terms of, of what is the correct way of understanding the Trinity, and you wander off into another uh, uh, heresy uh, inadvertently. <laughs> uh, tritheism, I, I feel like the two that he names here uh, with modalism and tritheism are the most common that you encounter in, in yeah, typical yeah. Christianity. And, and it's very, you know, well-meaning, you know, uh, you know, good Christians who believe Jesus Christ is Lord and is God. But then when you start talking about, you know, how does the God the Father relate to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden you realize that you know, this person may have a, um, a, a very subpar understanding or unintentional uh, heretical notion uh, about it. And so it goes back to uh, catechesis, 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 even with... Our members who are confirmed have been in the church and serving for years. Uh, it's good to do catechesis anyways. And uh, we're, we're a small, um, I was about to say church plant. We're now technically a parish. But uh, I told everyone, I was like, get a copy of the catechism. If you can't afford one, let me know privately. I'm going to get your copy because we're all working through it. And it's all going to be a joint exercise uh, for us in the upcoming year. Um, because you can... You can never learn enough, yeah. and if you think you've learned it all, you're going to forget something at some point. So it's just a good refresher to, to always go through that catechism. Well, and, and if you can get through the Acne Catechism in a year, uh, my hat's off, my Beretta off to you there, brother. Same here. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm glad you said that. I had a, a priest who disagreed with me. I was like, no, you can get through it. And I was like, I was like, I know I'm long-winded. I mean, heck, that's why we do these podcasts, right? But right, right. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, it takes quite some time to, to work through uh, these questions. And I think that's a good thing, you know, for the record. I, I love all the abundant scriptural references in that ACNA uh, catechism. Uh, and what we do is we actually start with the, the classic catechism to show, like, here is the, the fundamentals of the faith. Uh, that's that good. Always that's really been good yeah. yeah, I always go back to... Uh, I do the 28 version of the 1662 Catechism. Pretty much the same, a couple of changes because, uh, of course, when we say uh, the Lord's Prayer here in, in the States, uh, we don't say which art in heaven, we say uh, who art uh, in who heaven. Art, yeah. You know, but it's just it's minor changes like that for the most part. And um, and that way I can show, look, don't be intimidated by this Acne Catechism. Like, if you don't know all this, you know, like, you're not going to heaven. No, 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 no. Like, this is the fundamental of the faith. Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed. You could spend a lifetime on that 1662 catechism uh, that we've inherited as the 1928 catechism and then dive into, all right, you're going to have more questions. Let's go to the act of catechism. And uh, it does a good job of answering most, uh, maybe not all, but most of the questions for the uh, modern Christian who's coming to the faith or been in the faith. Yeah, and there was, you know, there, there's a, there was a long hist uh, tradition coming from the Reformation of having both a shorter catechism and a longer catechism absolutely you know the shorter catechism designed to be easy enough for that a child could memorize it but the longer catechism really getting into more of the deeper issues and i i guess we we never really had um an official longer catechism although there were some you know very popular ones like Noel's catechism yeah. that sort of thing and and i, I think the one area where um, I very much disagreed with the catechesis committee um, or task force or whatever it was called was that they decided not to have a shorter one. Although I very much yeah. understand why um, one of the guys on there said, well, the reason why we decided not to have one is that we knew that if we had one, 
human nature is that nobody would crack open the big one. And that's probably true because that's also why the short form <laughs> of yep. the uh, the short form Eucharist ended up getting expunged. Because even though the rubric specifically said in the trial versions that you weren't supposed to do this for for uh, the main Sunday service or for holy days, but only mm-hmm. kind of midweek, you know, sort of less formal gatherings. I think it's still everybody I knew yeah. was just was just using the short form. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I, I'm so glad they changed that in the 2019 prayer book to saying, I forgot what their original titles were, but they renamed them when they finalized it to Anglican Standard Text. Well, which and is they just the killed, classical. Yeah, and they yeah. just killed the short form. I mean, the short form got expunged completely. Well, it's still um, in the 2019. Uh, they put the uh, they call it the renewed ancient text. Well, no, that was the short form was even shorter than that. Oh, okay, okay, that could. Yeah, there were there that. were three yeah. forms originally. Oh, um, okay. And the short, yeah, there were three forms, and the short form was an abbreviation of what's now the Ang- the uh, renewed ancient. But um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've it, always it, used uh, the Anglican Standard with the nineteen twenty eight prayer books. So I hadn't even noticed. Oh, that. right. Yeah, I, I'm. You know, and me really kind of cutting my teeth as a, as a clergyman on the 28th. Yeah. Whenever I've used the, the 2019, it's always been, um, unless I've had to, it's always been the, the, the um, Anglican standard for the same reason. But yeah. everybody I know that was trained on the 79, they they pretty much only use the Renewed Ancient, which is why yeah. it was yeah. there. But yeah, yeah, originally originally in the trial versions, there was a third form, which was an abbreviation of that more 79 style. Mm-hmm. And they ended up removing it completely because even though it wasn't supposed to be used for um, the main Sunday worship, too many people were doing it. Yeah, yeah, that and makes so, sense. And I think there are some rubrical, you know, the rubrics are flexible enough to kind of get back to that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you you know, with kind of taking there's the, a lot of uh, optional stuff in the toilet, right? Yeah, yeah, just cutting to, out all the yeah. all I, the optional. I say stuff. there's a lot of optional stuff. A lot of stuff that I would not say is optional, but has right, been made right. optional. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I I got you on there, but yeah. Uh, but yes, I mean, but you you have to kind of work at it. So it, it yeah. work, if it requires more work to be lazy, most folks aren't going to do it. <laughs> yeah, and, and I definitely agree with that. That's definitely human nature. But see, what I hate is like not being a little bit more creative, and I still would have personally included the classic catechism, even if they had done it in an op- updated modern uh, language form. Uh, which just shamelessly plugged out of nowhere. <laughs> That's what I did, like my little booklet um, prior to the publication of the Act of Catechism, was oh, yeah. uh, was modernized the uh, the classical catechism from the 1928 uh, prayer book, and uh, along with some other things. But to have that in there as a resource. But I wish they had printed done one or two things: either printed the classic catechism, maybe with modern language, in the 2019, or include it in the front of the Act of Catechism. Or thirdly, they quote here and there from right. the classic catechism. I wish they had fully incorporated the classic catechism in the 120-plus question and answers just so that way it's in there. And you could have had like a, a piece of paper, uh, like an appendix uh, that just simply said, by the way, if you want to go through this catechism and just get the classic catechism, go to questions, you know, 1, 5, 10, etc., and you'll get the question and answer from the classic catechism but that's just my thoughts so if anyone's yeah, listening you could have made the you um, second edition kind of in the doc- oh yeah yeah 
But it, yeah, it could have been. It could have easily been in the documentary foundation section of the. Oh, that's book. a good point. Yeah. Um, and you know, I didn't think about that at the time of suggestions. Otherwise, I would have done so. But mm-hmm. yeah, and it and and it is interesting because they do refer to it a lot. They um, do, yeah. In, in, in the Acta Catechism, mm-hmm. we Doctor Tune actually had an updated version of the oh, old. Really. Um, yeah, I don't know if you remember the. It was this little blue book. I think it was just called. Um, an Anglican prayer book. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember yeah. that little book? I knew, I knew uh, he did it, but I've never seen it. I've just heard that he modernized like 1662, but didn't realize that he did the catechism as well. Yeah, and and really, what it was um, was the uh, 1928's Office of Instruction, and the first Office of Instruction is basically the catechism. Yeah, and so. He didn't separate it into two offices like the 28. He made it one big office, but that first half was. And so um, my bishop wanted wanted me to um, kind of in my role as his canon for liturgy. Yeah. Um, write out um, something, you know, kind of kind of a something to send to everybody that was kind of, OK, this is what you need to know to be confirmed. And so I said, why don't I just send them a copy of dr tunes yeah, <laughs> office yeah, of instruction absolutely. and that's what we did that's fantastic. <laughs> i don't know if anybody's i don't know if anybody's using it we we've used it um yeah. we're, we're just going to go back to the 28 office of instruction because that's mm-hmm. what we use exactly but i mean yeah we, we have used it in the past that's and, fantastic uh, it's, it's, it's pretty cool yeah, yeah we, I, I, I need to i need to compare yours to his one day that, uh cool. I, I would defer with dr tune but uh, my <laughs> shameless plug you, you notice i haven't even named what my book is i mean it was really just I had worked on so much stuff as an amateur and was like, uh, you know, why not get it published and had a, uh, a local publisher who's like, well, I'll publish that for you. So if anyone buys the book, I'm not even going to name it because I feel ashamed to plug it, but everything goes to our church. Like, I don't see one red cent. So <laughs> it's purely for the ministries of uh, Church of the Good Shepherd. But that being said, I would definitely go with Dr. Toon <laughs> in terms of his choices. <laughs> but uh, now you've got me curious. I'm going to have to get on Amazon buy it. Look at it and probably kind of kick myself. I'm like, hmm, yeah, Dr. Tune was right on that one. <laughs> yeah, well, but, once upon a time, I had about 10 copies of that little blue, blue yeah. book. Um, because, you know, basically they, they were like $5 from the Prayer Book Society. Yeah. And so, you know, I would buy it for my home group back when I was a deacon. And, um, you know, because we I was not in a 28 parish there. Yeah. And so, yeah, we, we didn't really have, that was before the uh, ACNA's, prayer book was out and so we were kind of in liturgical limbo at that parish at least in terms of kind of our daily office use yeah and so um yeah so i had i once upon a time i had about 10 copies of that because even though the people in the home group would reimburse me for it they would never take theirs home yeah yeah (laughs) oh well that's funny that's too good and i'll plug this real quick before uh we wrap up for for today but uh, on Noel, you know, you, you mentioned him, Alexander Noel, um, or now, I don't know how you pronounce his name, but, but, uh, on Anglican.net to plug that webpage, it's got a lot of free resources and, uh, gosh, it's been like two or three years ago. I helped on a portion of, uh, transcribing his middle catechism. And it's interesting oh, yeah. because he authored the little catechism that's in the classic prayer book, uh, that we inherited in the twenty eight. Uh, and, and the earlier American prayer book, too, but all the way up to the 28. And in the course of the 79 prayer book, dispensed with the classic catechism and came up with a different one. Uh, I'll just leave that at that. But, <laughs> but uh, Noel does the little catechism, 
and, and I'm sure you already know this canon, Isaac, but our listeners may not. And then he does a longer catechism. I want to say in 1570 or 1571, I could have my years off from that. But I know that he did a middle catechism, which was truly middle in terms of the length. So he does a short one that's in the prayer book, a long one that's popular, and then he does a middle one, which is he considers his final masterpiece version of it in 1572. And it was extremely popular. It, uh, like you mentioned earlier, it didn't achieve official status, but um, he was the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And it definitely got a lot of, of uh, traction, a lot of circulation in uh, the Elizabethan uh, Reformation. And uh, it's a really good catechism. I, I like going through it and have often thought that if I ever had free time um, to go through it and even slightly update the language just to have it as a resource for those who are interested. That's, that's really neat. I was not aware that he, um, I mean, I was aware of his, his larger catechism, but I wasn't aware that the middle existed. Yeah. And I was not aware that he was the, the author of the, of the prayer book, Shorter Catechism. Yeah. That's, and that's, that's neat. Yeah. And I confess, I've actually read some scholars uh, debate on a couple of different authors uh, on that. And, and I've seen some who've said that he wrote the, the little catechism, the smaller or shorter catechism, which uh, is also called sometimes the little catechism. And actually, the, the work that we worked off of in Anglican.net uh, was a version that it probably was published by the Parker Society, I imagine. It was one that was published in the 1800s, and I bet you it was a Parker Society edition of it. But we were basically uh, formatting it. We, we didn't update the language, but we retyped it out and formatted it. And uh, along with a bunch of others who worked on that, I was just one small cog in the wheel. And it was interesting because I learned a lot about his history. And uh, the point I was trying to make was that that edition in the 1800s attributed to him uh, the little catechism found in the prayer book. So wow. it, it's interesting. Uh, and it's interesting to read that middle catechism because I'd read the, the longer one. It's publicly available. You can find it online by just Googling around Alexander Noel longer catechism. The middle one, for whatever reason, just hadn't been published online. So Anglican.net did that. Uh, as a service to to everyone out there and uh it's really interesting to get to go through and compare and contrast um you know for example the the question and answer on the sacraments just to see what's in the little catechism how did it expound and expand upon it in the uh the middle version so good resource uh definitely recommend going to anglican.net because you've got all sorts of resources like Lancelot Andrews on justification and episcopacy, and uh, they've got the 1604 canons, which lasted for 300 years. Uh, love those canons. I actually did a presentation to uh, the jurisdiction of arms forces and chaplaincy at our convocation on canon law and referenced those heavily on how it was a canonical requirement for the, the parish uh, priest um, to use right before evening prayer on Sundays use that time to catechize uh, all the young um, members of the, the parish along with, uh, I forgot how it phrases it, but it's in such a wonderful, harsh English. I'm like, all those who are like ignorant of <laughs> the faith, you know, who are adults, you know, <laughs> something, <laughs> something that it sounds so mean, but, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, English, you know, it was just basically saying those who don't know the faith, you know, like you teach them the catechism, but I forgot how it's worded, but it's quite humorous in, in uh, a modern context. That's 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 neat. I think I feel like uh, you've given us some good homework. Um, I especially I'm gonna I'm gonna check out the, that middle catechism. That's that's really neat, and I I have a suspicion 
that um, the Office of Instruction probably borrowed from that middle catechism quite a bit, I, I, would, I would imagine. Yeah, that's a good point. I haven't even thought about that, so I'll have to go back and look at it myself. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of today's uh, episode. Sounds good. So much for us doing shorter 30-minute <laughs> episodes, but this was great. This was really good, and hopefully, uh, you know, if you're listening to this, you, you got uh, something out of it, uh, at least from Dr. Toon and his book, uh, but certainly in form of, of resources in the greater world of, of Anglicanism. Uh, there's a lot out there and uh, a lot of good resources that are being brought to the forefront. So uh, now more than ever, if you're curious about Anglicanism or you're inquiring about Anglicanism, there's a lot of internet resources that can really help you out. Best part of the 21st century right there. It's true. The moderns, uh, the, the marvels of modern technology. So. <laughs> well, this has been great. Ken and Isaac, I hope you have a great one. And uh, thank you to all the listeners out there. God bless. Take care. Bye. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.